Good morning, Springbrook. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. We're so glad that you're here. We're going to worship this morning, so I'm going to ask you just to stand. I love this time. It's just a corporate time of worship that we don't get any other time during the week. So let's just come to the Lord with all of these praises for his promises and for his faithfulness and, uh, and just praise his name for the good that he has shown us in our lives.
name this morning. From the moment that I 
Amen. You can be seated for a moment. Um, we have an opportunity to come together this morning to uh, celebrate communion. And, and God is so good, isn't he? God is so good. We came in this morning and we were scrambling around with some things with the building. And I was so grateful for God's provision for our ministry. And I was thinking about the goodness of God. And um, I was at a, a fam- funeral. I had a family funeral last weekend. I got in this morning at uh, 1 o'clock and I laid down in bed. And uh, by the time I got to bed, it was almost 2 o'clock. And then the, all of a sudden the time change clicked in. It went to 1. I was like, oh, I'm so grateful for that time change. <laughs> Usually I get an extra hour of sleep. You know, yesterday it just kind of saved me. <laughs> and then I was looking at our devotion. We've been reading through the, uh, you know, the Bible plan with our Springbrook, our Springbrook family. And we are on day 15 of things to give thanks thanks for as we head towards Thanksgiving. And I was looking at the list of, I got a list of 15 things I've been thankful for each day over the past week. And, and that list got a little overwhelming because we have so much to be thankful for. And so as we come together this morning uh, to celebrate communion, I don't know uh, what's going on in your life or where you're at, but we are so grateful that you're here, that we have an opportunity to celebrate uh, the hope that we have in Christ today. I was reminded of two passages, one from Lamentations, uh, three that talks about the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. God's love never ceases. And uh, that is a gift. And it's also a gift to be able to be a part of his family. God loves everyone. Uh, but in, uh, in uh, John chapter 1, it talks about the fact that those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, for those that have believed in his name, he gives them the right to be called children of God. And so we are part of God's family. And so we have an opportunity to celebrate and give thanks uh, for that this morning. It's also an opportunity for us this morning as we prepare for communion to uh, pray that God would help us to be able to evaluate our own hearts, that there's areas of our life that we need to turn over to his care and control. Uh, this is an opportunity for us just to offer those up to the Lord this morning, knowing that he is good and faithful. And so we want to encourage you uh, to participate in communion this morning at Springbrook, and so we celebrate open communion. If you have a relationship with Christ, uh, we want to invite you to participate in that. You can make your way to the front in just a few moments, and there's two cups. There's one with juice and bread, and you can take those back um, to your seat and take uh, communion as the Lord leads um, during this next song. Uh, But I can't help but think about the image of Jesus sitting around that table with his disciples, with his family, as he celebrates uh, you know, who they are together and reminds them of where he's going. And he lifts that loaf of bread and he breaks it. And he said, this bread is reflective of my body that's going to be broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you eat it, um, do this in remembrance of me. And then after they had finished eating, he lifted up the cup and he said, this cup is reflective of my blood that's going to be shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And so we're going to celebrate communion this morning, remembering the steadfast love of the Lord. We're going to be remembering uh, Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross and what that means for us. And so you can make your way to the front. If you uh, are unable to make your way to the front and you'd like a member of our communion team to bring uh, communion to you, you can just raise your hands uh, and they will do that in just a few moments. But would you pray with me as we uh, commit this uh, next segment of our communion time uh, together to the Lord? Father, we just thank you that no matter what's going on in our lives, that your love is steadfast. Uh, I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and for your calling on our life. I pray that you continue to grow us in our faith, that we may be an encouragement uh, to one another, and that our lives uh, may be glorifying to you. And we commit this time to you. We commit this day to you, uh, for you and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so you can make your way to the front as the Lord leads. How great the chasm 
Father God, we just thank you this morning. We thank you this morning for rising from the dead, for regaining, God, control over your domain. God, we praise you for how good you are. You're good to us in a time when we don't ever deserve it. And you're faithful to us at a time when sometimes we least expect it. God, we thank you for your relationship with us, for your promises that you have kept. And God, through that, the hope that we are able to find in you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome again to Springbrook. We're so glad that you are with us. If this is your first or second time with us today, we're uh, glad that you are with us. If you are watching with us online today, we have our online hosts are available for you as well. Uh, you can say hi in the chat or just uh, click that uh, request prayer button. They'll be more than happy to pray with you or uh, answer any questions that you might have about Springbrook. And if you're with us this morning, uh, you've got a connection card on your chair, and so you can uh, fill that out at any point during the service. And then we have a collection and an offering box in the back. You can just drop that uh, in the box on your way out this morning. Or if you're, uh, if you're up for it, you can text here uh, to that phone number. You can scan that QR code. And so if you're here on a regular basis, uh, you can just text here when you get here. Just let us know you're here. We want to celebrate that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, this is uh, it's an opportunity for us to just kind of be aware of, you know, uh, keeping the attendance. And so if you're not here for a while, you will shoot your note and make sure everything's okay. <laughs> so I think it's one of the few churches we actually uh, keep attendance in Springbrook. And it's important to us as we uh, get to know people and uh, care for and help others get connected um, to our church. And so if you have any questions about that, please uh, let us know. And this is the last weekend to sign up for marriage date night. And so it is next Saturday. And so uh, if you know any first responders, we're offering uh, uh, discounted tickets for them just as a, a thank you for serving our community. Um, I think there are close to uh, 200 people that have registered for that already. And so it's going to be a great event. If you've had an opportunity to attend in the past, you know how much fun it is. And so this is going to be a great event. So it's a great, uh, you can purchase a ticket, you can invite a neighbor or a friend, um, but you'd want to be able to do that uh, before next Saturday because we're going to be right here starting at uh, 6 p.m. as general admission. And then they have VIP early tickets at 5 p.m. where you can get to meet some of the comedians and the artists. And uh, they got a free gift for you. And so if you want more information about that, please um, visit our website. And then we've also been contacted by several school districts districts in our community, um, wanting to know if we might be able to help them uh, support families in our community that are in need. And so we are uh, praying right now to be able to supply 60 Thanksgiving baskets um, to various schools and uh, organizations in our community. And so if you would like to uh, either bring a basket in uh, to donate or if you would like to purchase a basket, um, we'll be putting together a team to get all the materials necessary to help someone have a great Thanksgiving uh, coming up. And so if you are interested in purchasing a basket, um, you can go to our website um, or uh, there's some QR codes. It's on our app. It's everywhere. <laughs> so, But if you want more information about how to uh, help us provide Thanksgiving baskets for those in our community uh, that are in need, we'd love the opportunity to be able to support that effort. And then I uh, also want to let you know we have our Prayer First uh, initiative, our Concert of Prayer coming up on uh, November 18th as we move towards the end of the year. 
uh, start to begin to pray for what God would have for us moving into the next year. This is a great opportunity for us to come together and worship and uh, pray together. And so if you want uh, more information about that, you can visit our website. And then uh, our worship team has got some exciting opportunities coming up. And uh, we have uh, a new production. Chris is back there serving. We have, uh, I think Sandy's back there uh, learning how to do production. We've got new people on the team. And so uh, how long have you been at Springbrook, Kyle? Uh, like four months. Four months. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're glad you're here. You're doing a great job. It's been exciting it. to see how God has been building that team up. So tell us a little bit about some of the opportunities we have on our worship team and some things coming up with uh, the concert of prayer. Yeah, so I think within any ministry, uh, depth is something that uh, the ministry leaders will never say no to. Mm-hmm. So if there's somewhere on, uh, within the worship ministry that you are maybe interested in serving and just haven't done so yet or haven't reached out to me yet, uh, please find me after the service and tell me what that is because I want to find a spot for you and somewhere where you feel connected and somewhere where you can serve. But uh, we do have some spe- specific needs as of right now, uh, specifically within the booth and on the stage. So uh, we've got a need for somebody to actually run these slides um, on Sunday mornings. And uh, it's a little bit intricate. There is some training involved, but we love to get together with you if that's something you feel as though uh, you are interested in. It doesn't require a whole lot of know-how as far as technology goes, so it's pretty simple. As long as you can uh, use a keyboard, use a mouse, and a computer uh, in that aspect, then you'll be just perfectly fine. Um, and then we have another position, our lights position, so uh, making these dim during the services, uh, making them come back on, um, all of that stuff, some of the stuff up here, uh, all of these different uh, presets that we have uh, within the sanctuary, we've got a spot for you if you're interested in doing that. Uh, that one is very, very little training, so it's a very, um, if you want to get serving immediately right away, that's the opportunity right there for you, I guarantee it. So, uh, but those are two of the biggest needs in the booth. And then uh, we are always looking for instrumentalists on the worship team. Um, I love working with instrumentalists. Um, I, at heart, am an instrumentalist first before a vocalist. And so um, I love to kind of coach up and explain and kind of provide some uh, vision as to what we are doing within these songs. So if that's something that you're interested in, maybe you play guitar, maybe you play keyboard, whatever it is, I would like to talk to you. Yeah, so you can scan that QR code or uh, go to our website. You can certainly talk to Kyle. Uh, but I want to thank you for your uh, leadership and um, you know that production booth back there. We really appreciate those guys. We're really dependent on them. They make us sound good and look good. <laughs> Better and look good more than we are. <laughs> well, if you have any questions, please let us know. We're thankful that you were here with us today. Uh, Pastor uh, Jeff is going to be out in just a moment. morning. So we're in November already, huh? That happened fast. We got Thanksgiving is coming, you know, just around the corner, and uh, November has always been an extra special month for my family, because uh, you may not know this, but November happens to be National Adoption Month, and uh, my family and I have been very upfront and very proud of the fact that we've chosen to build our family, you know, through adoption. We've you know, adopted three kids, you know, by God's grace, and so again, it's an extra special month for us, and and while a lot of people know that, and they know that's how we chose to build our family, what not a lot of people know, and even fewer might understand, is that my wife and I actually had uh, four failed adoption attempts prior to adopting our kids. 
And so that might be kind of foreign to you or you're unsure of you know, what that means, but um, basically you put together a profile with an agency and they show it to prospective mothers and that involves being chosen four separate times and having a lead up and all this joy and anticipation only to have it kind of you know, fall apart at the last moment and have some awkward discussions with friends and family members as you try and say, I thought you were going to be a parent. No, it, it didn't work out. And, and just going through that time and time again. But um, in all four of those, you know, they were all you know, terrible in their own rights. But the worst one of all was, you know, the second one where our agency had paired us up with an older couple and they were feeling really good about the, the match and the pairing because, you know, they had raised their kids. They were in a place where uh, they weren't financially, you know, able to raise the child again, and so they were very firm in their decision. And so, it was somebody that they were very confident in pairing us up with. And so, we met the family, and everything seemed to go off without a hitch very well. And so, the uh, time came and went where she gave birth to a beautiful baby girl, and my wife and I went to the hospital and went ahead and picked her up. And that's me with a lot more hair and a lot more color in my hair at that time, but. But we took this uh, baby girl home, beautiful girl, and we named her Naomi after one of my favorite um, Old Testament, you know, saints. And so uh, we were overjoyed as parents. We, uh, we were probably glowing and had people coming by the house to, you know, meet her and uh, bring gifts and, and talk to us about this, you know, overwhelming joy that we felt that this thing that we had looked forward to being parents for so long, you know, is finally being realized. And then a couple days after we had brought her home, we received a call from one of our uh, reps at our agency. And they said, well, the time to come for them to sign parental surrenders has come and gone, and they haven't done so yet, but it's probably just a logistical thing. It's not something that you need to be worried about. And so I kind of put that in the back of my brain, and I was just kind of like, okay, well, you know, I'm barely sleeping. <laughs> We're really busy here. I need to plow on and go through my life. Then a couple of days later, and we got a call from them, and they said, now they're having hesitations about signing their surrenders. And so that, that really kind of put me into a tailspin, as I didn't know what was going on. We already had this, you know, girl that we were loving and caring for as our own at home, and yet we had this, you know, prospect that this might be taken from us at some point. And so a couple of days after that particular point, we got another call and said, the parents, the birth parents, would like a mediated meeting with you guys. We just want you to get you guys in the same room together, have you talk, and um, maybe solidify their decision as to what they've decided to do with this you know, baby girl. And so, you know, my wife and I went, and we had somebody who was supposed to be advocating for us, as they're supposed to be advocating. But um, as we got there, we realized this was not something that we should have been at. The mother was obviously suffering from some postpartum depression symptoms, and we could both hear that by what she was saying, but also see that very visibly. You know, she looks like somebody who was very shaken, and so... You know, our advocate spent most of the time with her just trying to console her and do what I think she thought, you know, was right. But we came out of that meeting knowing that things were not going in the, wrong, in the right direction and they were going in the wrong direction fairly fast. And so, you know, two weeks after we brought this girl home, a representative from our agency came to our house and took the girl back to be with her birth parents. And so we had, were parents for, you know, the period of about a week and a half, and then that was, you know, taken from us. And so this was something, understandably, my wife and I were very devastated about. We had gone from sky high, having all of our hopes and dreams realized, to being in a place where you had a dark room, you know, where this girl had been, and we walked by it every day and just couldn't believe that this had happened to us. And so then we had some people who came alongside us, and they tried to uh, console us the best way that they could. And it's a really difficult, confusing situation. So, you know, they, they kind of didn't know what to say or, you know, what necessarily to do. 
We had some family members that offered us, you know, to send us away somewhere. It was a very nice gesture, but it wasn't something that we were really prepared to do and wasn't something we thought that we wanted to do at the time, but it was very kind. Um, we had another family over in Lake in the Hills who's a fellow adoptive family. We went to their house and we just poured out our hearts to them and they just sat and listened and said, yeah, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And so that was very helpful. But then we had others who you know, made comments or gave, um, not lectures, but you know, things that they thought that you know, God was giving them to say that weren't so helpful. Some people would say things like, I just don't think that it was meant to be. And it was kind of like, okay, well, thank you. You know, I, I don't know exactly how to take that. We began praying that the mother would come to her original decision and realize the things that she had uh, leaned upon to make that choice in the first place. And then we had somebody tell us that they did not think it was appropriate for us to pray in that particular direction. And I just couldn't understand that. Like, do you have a direct line with God and he's told you this? I, I, I don't get it. And then, you know, something that a lot of people said, but I don't think they really thought through the thoughts or implications behind it. They said that everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Now, if you've been with us these past couple of weeks, we've been in our Trite Not True series talking about statements that are trite, meaning they're either half-truths or sometimes they're completely wrong entirely. Or if you take a look at uh, Pastor Tim's message from last week, they're just used in the wrong way. They're taken out of context and applied to situations that they don't belong. And so, you know, these are statements that we should stop and give us pause and say, is this really, you know, something that Scripture speaks to? Is this really something, you know, that, you know, I should be believing in? And so, you know, we're taking a look at these statements, and we've come to the last one today that says everything happens for a reason. And so I think that that particular phrase is on this list for a couple of reasons. The first of which I think that it's used insensitively sometimes. It's kind of used like a magic band-aid or, you know, just the permaseal where you have somebody who's mourning and you don't know what else to say. And so you just go ahead and you slap it on. And, you know, that should resolve the situation. We're able to, you know, go ahead and walk away with that. And I said the thing I was supposed to, you know, and I can walk away. And so I think it's an insensitive phrase that we don't realize, you know, what it is that we're saying when we use it sometimes. Also, I happen to think that it's very presumptuous. While God knows the reason behind everything, you know, he's doing, he's sovereign, he's, you know, working in, you know, ways that we can't know and understand, he knows what he's doing, but yet we don't. And so when we throw around a phrase like everything happens for a reason, we assume, you know, God's reasoning for doing things, and it's not necessarily probably what it is, you know, that he has in mind. And so to go ahead and illustrate that, I want to spend some time, we're going to take kind of like a jet tour through the book of Job today. And so if you want to start, you know, turning there, I've kind of centered on the book of Job for a couple of reasons. Um, the first of which is that it deals with a group of some insensitive, you know, comforters. There's that saying that goes, if you have, you know, friends like these who needs enemies, that's kind of like Job's, you know, story here. And so we can see how not to comfort somebody through going through major, you know, pain and affliction. And also I'm choosing it because we have some individuals who are very presumptuous, they thought that they were speaking for God and speaking into Job's life, telling him things that were not what it was that God was doing in Job's life. And so if you're in the book, we're going to start with the first chapter, and we're just going to kind of piecemeal some parts, and I'm going to fly through others. And so um, good book to spend some time with, but it's you know 42 chapters long, and we don't have time to read through it all. But I think the message here is uh, very illustrative of you know why we shouldn't use a phrase like everything happens for a reason. But we'll start, Job chapter 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, 
And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his, excuse me, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that some of my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And so here we get a background of, you know, what kind of a person it is that, you know, Job was. And so we learn a few things. We learn about Job's blessings, but then also we learn more importantly about his character. We learn that Job was a man who was, you know, blessed with his children. He had seven sons and three daughters. And so in a day where, you know, sons were um, supremely important, you know, he had, you know, a plethora of those. He was also a very wealthy man. Um, in that day, it wasn't about how big your bank account was because they didn't have banks. So you showed your wealth by the number of flocks that you have. It was a, an agrarian society. People, you know, farmed. And so he had, you know, vast numbers of animals in different places. And in fact, in the text, it says he was the greatest man in the East. He, it was known that this man, you know, was incredibly wealthy. But again, more importantly, it showed that Job had impeccable character. He's called in the text, you know, blameless and upright. And it says that he feared God and turned from evil. And in fact, it's, I just find it funny, but he would even, if, just fearing that his kids had done something in their hearts, not knowing if they had sinned or not, he would come to a point where he would actually offer sacrifices for them just in case. And so he was a man who was, you know, again, very upright, very, you know, righteous and, and wanted to certainly do by, right by God. And so this is kind of gives us a background as to who Job was. But then I want to take a look first at what I'm calling Act 1, because we have two separate acts. We have something that happens in the heavenly realm, and then we see the effects that happen to Job on earth. And then we're going to take a look at a second act where there's another discussion in the heavenly realms, and then we see the implications that, you know, happen to Job. And so let's continue on in verse 6, and we'll read through the next six verses here. So it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So, so you know this is not good. Then the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it, which is creepy. Um, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and who turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the the Lord, and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land? And so here's his suggestion, Satan's, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so we have, you know, this uh, first act, and first we see the conversation that happens in the heavenly places. And so we see here that angelic beings, what the text refers to as sons of God, they come before the throne of the Lord, and Satan comes walking in, you know, amongst them. And here God points to Job as a faithful follower of his. And Satan replies that, God, that Job rather, 
would curse God to his face if he would mean take the hedge of protection away from him and he would take away all of the possessions and everything that he has. And so now we move from that discussion and then we see the results of what happens. The first, we see that he loses all the flocks in a series of misfortunes. And so if you read on in the text there, a servant comes up and says, this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened. And so he loses, you know, this flock and then that flock. And then probably the worst of what happens is that uh, the servant comes to him and he talks to him about his children. He says, while he was yet speaking, there came another that said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. And so seemingly from a you know, worldly perspective, Job has now lost everything. He's lost all of his flocks, his wealth, and now he's also lost his children. A natural disaster swept in and has um, you know, caused his children you know, to die. But interesting, in the last verse of the chapter, it mentions again that Job did not sin or did not curse God even after all of this. And so then we move on. I told you that we were going to be flying through pretty quickly. We come to the second act. And so Job has not cursed God to his face. Satan is dissatisfied with this. And so he comes before the Lord again. So um, if you pick up your Bibles back in Job, take a look at Job chapter 2. It says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And then he answers similar to he did the last time. If you move down to verse 4, it says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch your hand and touch the bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So in other words, we took away his stuff and he didn't do it. He took away his family and he didn't curse you to your face. Now you're going to touch his body and surely he's going to go ahead and curse you. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you not hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, meaning Job, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so we have a few interesting things that happen here in the, in the second act with Job. And so we're treated first to this conversation again where Satan comes and he says, I want to afflict his body. He's given by permission by God in order to do so. And again, um, he inflicts him with these you know, sores where he's stuck using a piece of broken pottery in order to scrape himself. If you take a look at the word for the sores, it's actually kind of like inflamed ulcers that just completely consumed his body. It mentions you know, from his feet up to the top of his head, you know, he's afflicted with these. And so he's in great physical pain, not to mention the emotional and the, the uh, toil that the other circumstances have had you know, on him. And after all this, though, it says that God did not sin or charge God, you know, with wrong. Even that the, you know, uh, instructions of his wife to curse God and die, he says that you're speaking in a foolish manner. You know, certainly this is not something that I'm going to do. And so something else that's interesting with this text is as uh, Satan takes away everything that Job has, kind of as a reader you wonder, why does God not step into this situation and say, nope, not going to do that, not going to allow you to touch him, that's not something that you're going to do. 
but, but that isn't what he chooses to do. And so it seemingly sets up a question for us as the readers to, why is he allowing, you know, this to happen? And so, um, you know, it's something that the readers carry, you know, th- through the text as you read through the book looking for an answer for that. So we're going to move along to next is Job's comforters. And I should have put that in quotations, you know, comforters. So, um, but if you pick up in Job chapter 2, we'll read about, found out who these guys are, starting in verse 11. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment uh, together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat down on the ground seven days and nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. And so Job has these, you know, three friends, you know, which come to him, and they have actually uh, really good intentions to start with. They do some good things. The first thing in which is they offer their presence, which is something that we should do to somebody in mourning. We should allow them to know that, you know, that we're there. In addition, it says for a lengthy period of time, they didn't say anything, right? Sometimes, you know, if your mother said to you, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. It also goes when you're in a house of mourning, if you don't know what to say, sometimes it's better to say nothing at all. Or just, you know, you're sorry, you know, would be, you know, sufficient for that. And then it also says that they did something really nice, which is they stayed for an entire week. So seven days and seven nights, they gave their presence, they sat with Job, and so you know, they, you know, attempted to comfort him in this way. They even uh, gave a, uh, you know, yell out in in order to, you know, grieve with him. And so, you know, they started out at least very well. But then, you know, again, the expression, I have to say it again, with friends like these who needs enemies, they open their mouth and they start purporting to speak with God, speak what God would have to say to Job. They start to tell him in, in their own way that everything happens for a reason, Job, and these are some of the reasons that these things are happening to you. And so they start out kind of innocuous. So we have some gems from Job's friends. The fr- Eliphaz starts out and he says, uh, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they will perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. And so it's kind of a jaded slight at him a little bit and saying like, Wicked people kind of get what's coming to them. And, and so I'm not necessarily saying that that's you, Job, but you see the way of the world, this is kind of how it works. People do wrong things and they receive justice. You know, have you thought about that? And so it's kind of a, an underhanded, you know, comforting comment that's you know, uh, given to us by Eliphaz. You go further on in the book, comes time for Bildad to speak, and he's <laughs> a lot more forward <laughs> about how he feels. He says, does God pervert justice or does the Lord pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Yikes. Sorry that your children are dead, Job. They just did something that ticked them off, and so they received the just desserts of what it is that they had done. And so this is an awful thing to say to somebody, and they are purporting to speak for God, but as we'll see in a little bit, you know, he, he had, you know, other things in mind. And so, uh, Bildad, not a good comforter. Don't name your children Bildad, please. So far gets into the mix, and he says, should a multitude of words go unanswered? This is after Job speaks back to him, and so 
he kind of says, like, you need to stop talking, son. So, but he says, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, should no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure. I am clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of his wisdom. But he, he's going to in a little bit, guys. Don't worry. He's going to tell you how he feels about you. But he says, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts less of you than your guilt deserves. And so he's coming in presumably to speak for God and telling Job, you know, all these things that have happened to you, you actually deserved more. And God is exacting less of you, you know, than it is that your guilt deserves. So I can't imagine, you know, saying this to somebody, and I, I know that none of you would say anything like this. But again, we need to be careful when we use our words, especially with uh, hurt and mourning people, you know, that we're very, you know, precise with our language and that we don't presume to speak something for God that, you know, he would not intend or say for them. And so, again, it's just terrible comforter here. One last one. Um, several of them get lots of chances to speak with Job and kind of get some things off of their mind. And Eliphaz, where he was kind of indirect the first time, comes back the second time and he says, it's not your evil abundant. You know, there is no end to your iniquities, Job. You know, this, only, this stuff only happens to bad people. You must have done something terrible. There's no end to your iniquities. And so you're receiving the just desserts for the nasty things that you've done. And so, you know, this is, you know, how they deserve, decide to go ahead and comfort him. And so we come to the end of the book. This is important for Job not only vindicating him, but it's also important for us because it shows us that sometimes the things that we're thinking that God is doing and the reasons for doing so are not God's reasons, you know, for doing those things. And so we presumably should not, you know, speak for him. And so we're going to see here how um, God answers Job's friends. And so I know, take a minute, a moment in your Bible and flip all the way over to Job chapter, you know, 42 towards the end of the book. And this comes after, you know, God answers Job um, personally, starts talking about a bunch of rhetorical questions which he can't answer and, and, you know, questioning what's happened to him. But then we come to the point where he goes ahead and he answers Job's friends and talks to them about some of the choice words that they've had for Job. Um, but go down to Job chapter 42, verses, you know, 7 through, yeah, we'll go 7 through 8. It says, And the Lord had spoken these words to Job, excuse me, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And now therefore take, you know, seven bulls, and he tells them about this offering that they're to take up. And then he says that, and my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. In other words, you guys thought you were being such a good friend to him. You're lucky that you have such a friend that he's going to pray for you, and I'm not going to deal with you according to my anger. Because the way that you've been speaking to him, you know, I would otherwise do some things, but I'm not going to, because Job is going to pray for you, and I will accept your offering. But he says, you know, twice in this text, for you have not spoken of me, what is right, as my servant Job has. Again, you have not spoken of me what is right. They thought that they were speaking for him, the way that they saw the world working and God working in the world. And he comes to them and he says, you're mistaken. That is not the way that I work and not the way that I do things. And so the book ends with God restoring Job's fortune and blessing him and his, giving him his family and his uh, possessions back. It does not, however give us an answer as to why these things happened to Job in the first place. 
And so I mentioned at the beginning that it sets up a question, but it sets up a question, you know, that doesn't end up being answered in this book. Is that a problem for anybody that you would, you know, why do these things you know, happen to him? I, you know, and we, it sets it up and it doesn't, and God essentially says to Job, you know, I am God and you are not. I am doing things that you cannot know or understand, and, and I am sovereign and I will do them. And so, you know, that lesson is not learned, by, uh, you know, in that time. It's also not learned by the time we get to New Testament times, because we still sometimes think that we, they were thinking rather that um, they know how it was, that, you know, that God was working. And so there's this interesting passage by where, you know, Jesus is uh, with his disciples. It says he passed by, um, he, meaning Jesus, saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they have this idea, you know, that you can be in the womb and you can sin somehow, and then you're going to come out blind and be blind from birth, you know. And so they have this assumption that God works in a certain, you know, way. And so, you know, Jesus has to correct them. And he says, he answered, it is not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So he says, you're totally getting it wrong. It has nothing to do with sin. This man was born blind because he was going to have a choice meeting with the Son of God, who, who is myself, as Jesus is speaking, and I'm going to display my glory by healing this man and pointing the rest of you that in the Son of Man has come to give salvation to you all. He says, this is the reason that this person you know, was born blind. And so they have these assumptions, and sometimes you know, they're completely wrong. And it's you know, fine for us sometimes to speculate or think about what might God might be doing in a certain situation, but it's wrong to say that we know for sure and to make those declarations and to tell others you know, about that and making statements like everything happens you know, for a reason. And so you know, it's kind of disquieting a lot to think about that you know, sometimes things will happen to us and we're not going to have you know, a reason given to us for them. And so... Uh, you know, I struggle with this. I know it's a, a big thing for non-believers, especially why do, you know, bad things happen to good people? And, you know, you guys uh, purport to have a, a loving God, and, and he is, you know, but, you know, why is it seeming that, uh, you know, these evil things, you know, happen in the world? And so, you know, there's a lot of different uh, things that we could say about it, but I just wanted to talk about something that means a lot to me personally in the way that I happen to think about it. And mainly, I think that we must live our lives not dwelling on any one moment in time, but rather thinking of everything as being in light of eternity and in light of an eternal perspective of, you know, what God, God is doing. And so I'll just explain that in a couple of different ways here. And I think that that's uh, something that is scripturally supported. Uh, from Romans 8.18, Paul speaking there says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy with comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So, Again, if we're living just in that moment, in this moment of suffering that we're in, they're not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed of us in God's eternal, um, all-knowing, all-loving, and all-encompassing plan that he has for each and every one of us. Um, just to kind of put some bones on that and explain it, so I'm sorry that's a lengthy quote, but I'll go ahead and, and read it here, but, and I think it's um, very good at you know, kind of explaining what I mean. But this is a book by Clay Jones where he says, Suppose you have a child who lives to be 100 years old. When she was five, you inoculated her against polio, and the pain of that shot caused her to cry for five minutes. Anybody ever given inoculations to your kids? They look at you like, why did you do this to me? It's a, so, so I completely understand this one, and I'm with them on that. Um, five minutes out of 100 years comes to be 
uh, point, and then there's uh, five zeros followed by 95% of your child's lifetime if they live to be 100. So it's a very small portion of their life that they experience this pain. Then he says, you as a parent inflicted real suffering, but for a very short period of time. Now consider how long a 100-year lifespan is compared to eternity. It's a fraction that's much, much, much smaller than that you know, one that he lists here. And so if we live 100 years compared to eternity, you know, our life you know, here on earth ends up you know, being a blip. And what would you think if your child were to complain about the five minutes of suffering caused by her inoculation and held it against you? You'd think that you'd raised an ungrateful child, right? If you, if, you, if you hear have adult children and they come to you and you know, they come up and say, we were in the doctor's office that one time and you inoculated me against that disease that kills thousands of people and the needle really hurt and I'm really, really scarred by that and I'm really you know, upset that you did that to me. Anybody have that happen? No, no, it, of course not. <clears throat> but it says, this is what eternity does to our sufferings. The joys of eternal life will dwarf our suffering to insignificance and put the lessons learned that suffering in the proper eternal perspective. And so, I give this quote not to minimize our sufferings, not to, um, you know, some people in here are dealing with some real things. Uh, you know, you have, you know, family members that have passed away, people that you've uh, known and relied on for a very long time who have you know, passed on, and so um, your sufferings are very significant. But I think when we take a look at them, again, in the light of eternity, when we're taking a look at what God is preparing to do, he's going to take care of us from that aspect. And I think that we can have faith in him to do so, and we can rest in that. Um, taking a look at one of, it's probably becoming one of my favorite passages, if not my favorite, comes from Revelation 21, 3 through 5. And so this is kind of at the end of time when the new Jerusalem has come down and, you know, God tells us some things about our eternally abode. And if you, um, you go ahead and, and listen to what it is that he has to say here, I'll read it for us. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Um, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. For God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, now listen to what he says here. Behold, I am making all things new. Not just things in the future, you know, not, you know, just some things. He's talking about all things, and he's talking about making them new. And so all things new, talking about every situation being dealt with perfectly and justly. Every situation that you've had where um, injustice has been done with you is is going to be dealt with at some point in, in the light of eternity again. Wrongs will be righted and things will be made right the way that they were supposed to be. And so we can look forward and, you know, we can, you know, have faith that, you know, God will take care of us even in these most difficult of circumstances. And so instead of saying everything happens for a reason, perhaps if we want to be more precise and looking forward to um, everything from an internal lens, we should say God will ultimately redeem everything that happens to us, you know, he won't, you know, make it, you know, better here and now, but, you know, ultimately he will redeem it, whether in this life or the next. And so some of you have to have an eternal lens because you're looking forward to something that's going to happen in your eternal life, not necessarily here on earth. We don't know how or when he's going to do it, but we can trust because he says in his word that he will. And so um, I would use this phrase instead of everything happens for a reason, this, make sure that we're not coming across as being, um, 
trite, I guess, if we're to use the statement from, you know, the series, or, or something that we're trying to slap a band-aid on a situation and presuming to speak for God, but rather pointing them to the passages that may actually be of comfort to them and saying that we can, you know, trust God that he will right all of the wrongs, you know, that have been done in this world. So um, go ahead and pray with me, if you would, please. Lord, um, this is a very difficult subject and topic to wrestle with this week, and I pray that um, through the reading of Job, through um, some of the other passages that I shared about um, how you choose to do things and um, how you work in this world, that we would take comfort in the fact of knowing that you are in control of it all. I pray that um, for anybody that is suffering right now, that you would bring good comforters around them, that you would bring people who would be able to just provide their presence, that would be able to um, just share some of their sorrow and try and be uh, you know, present help to them, not only in the immediacy, but also um, in the time following that is it um, time does not heal all wounds, but you promise in your word, Lord God, that you will heal all wounds. And so help us to look forward to that with expectancy, that time where you will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and um, you promise that you know, death will be no more, and that uh, you will right every wrong, and we look forward to you, Lord God, making all things new. And um, help us to realize also that you start with us. Um, each one of us that knows Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is... Um, a new creation, and so we are the first fruits or the start of that uh, new life that's to come. And so help us to look forward again with an eternal perspective as to what you will do in the future, and uh, knowing that you are there with us every step along the way. You don't leave us as orphans in our pain, uh, but you are ever-present in and through each one of those moments. And so, um, again, hopefully something that I've said today will um, you know, mean something to somebody in one of those situations. And um, I just uh, thank you, Lord, for you know, this series to help me to be uh, very more careful in the language which I use. And so uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. And with us.
allowing us this opportunity to just praise your name this morning, corporately together, just fighting our own spiritual battles, God, as one collective congregation. This morning, church, as we prepare to, to leave this place, I just want to encourage you by saying that there is something different about our God, and there is also something different about us due to our relationship with him. Let's go in peace, knowing that we can be an example to every single person that we come into contact. Let's go in peace. Thank you.